Hello and welcome to another episode of The Conversation where the Young Turks brings you interviews with political and cultural thought leaders. I am excited to be joined by none other than John Nichols. He's the national correspondent for thenation.com and author of the book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. John, how are you today? I am better because I'm with you, my friend, <laughs> uh, but I'm well and I hope you're well also. Yeah, we're doing well, all things considered. I, I appreciate the conversations that we've had in the past, and I'm excited about what we can discuss today there. You have a lot of articles that you've written that I want to get to, but before I do that, I always like to reference your most recent book, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. It feels like we are literally in that type of fight right now. God, for the people who may not know a little bit about your book, can you just kind of give us like a, a 20 second snapshot of why your work on that book is so important? Well, it's a brutal thing to do to any author to say 20 seconds, right? <laughs> well, but, 30, 45 seconds. No, no, but. No, you're, you're right to do it. We have a lot to talk about today. But uh, my book is, it starts in the 1940s and it comes up to the present. And it examines the battles between uh, what I look at as, as progressives, the supporters of economic and social and racial justice, saving the planet and peace. Versus the corporate interests that want the party to compromise, that want it to be centrist and cautious. And the simple argument I make is that every time the Democratic Party has compromised on principle, it has ultimately come back to haunt the party. It's lost majorities in the House and Senate after having winning the presidency. It's been set back. And the biggest and most haunting thing is that too frequently, when the Democratic Party has compromised on moral issues, on fundamental issues like racial justice, it has set not just the politics, but the country itself back. And so my book is really a very passionate argument that the Democratic Party needs to become a bolder and more principled party as a counterbalance to a Republican Party that I think has gone not just off the rails, but to authoritarian extremes that makes it very dangerous. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's a great segue into one of your most recent articles in the nation. You said, without Medicare for all, this isn't the boldest Democratic platform in American history. You write, 700 Democratic delegates signal that they will oppose a platform that fails to renew the party's commitment to establish a national health care system. Let's talk about that article in context of the boldness that um, that they're claiming to have, but in the absence of Medicare for all, it's not so much. That's exactly right, my friend. Look, um, when the Democratic Party's uh, platform drafting committee completed its work last week, the co-chair of the committee announced that it was the boldest uh, Democratic platform in history. Now that's just false. It isn't the boldest democratic platform in history. Uh, you have to have some sort of contextual sense on this. And certainly uh, the democratic platforms uh, at many points in history have, have been far more uh, bold as regards the issues they're dealing with in the moment. And particularly, I think that does come back to race, but also on um, issues of economic and, and social justice. Quite frequently, they've had bolder platforms in the past. And they've also, as I say, had bolder platforms on Medicare for all. In, in the 1940s, the Democrats were talking about an economic bill of rights that included a right to health care um, from 1944 and 1948 onwards uh, into the 1980s. They literally had a commitment to universal national health care plan, uh, very much along the lines of what we would think of as single payer or Medicare for all today. And so. They've been better in the past. 
Mm. And that question you have to ask yourself, why now when we have polling that shows overwhelmingly the American people are ready to go to a Medicare for all system. And when we have the practical realities of the moment, you know, tens of millions of people with inadequate health care or no health care or uncertainty about their health care in the midst of a global pandemic, yeah. it's just the wrong way for the party to go. And yet, this is this is where they're going, right? And it seems to be um, uh, the primaries. I think the last time we spoke, we discussed how the primaries were actually the opposite of what they normally are. Where in the primaries, everyone runs to um, their base. They, you know, Democratic side, they would run to the left. In this case, the winner of the primaries ran as far away from the left as he possibly could. Um, I attribute it to being surrounded by Democratic consultants, the standard uh, corporate uh, corporate wing of the Democratic Party. What's your take on why at a time when and these more radical platforms are not even viewed as radical by most Americans anymore. It's the perfect timing for them, but yet and still the candidate that the Democratic Party chose is trying to avoid them at all costs. Well, look, I think the money power in America bets on both parties. And I think they work very, very hard to be influential behind the scenes and sometimes you know, right up front. Uh, on the platforms and the policies and the nominees of, of both political parties. They don't always succeed. Um, sometimes somebody will sneak through like a, a George McGovern in 1972. But when when a outlier does in the Democratic Party, the fascinating thing is the money moves over and backs the other side. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're very determined about how they do their politics. And uh, in this case, they bet on Biden. They weren't sure that he could pull it off, but the a lot of factors made it possible for him to do so. Yeah. And the end result is that Biden comes out of that politics. That's his culture. That's what he knows. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's as conservative as some people think. The reality is it's just literally how he learned to do politics coming out of Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the message I keep coming back to is there is always a fight between the corporate centrists and progressives. And what progressives need to know is they fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. Frankly, now they're fighting for the soul of Joe Biden and they should mm-hmm. keep fighting. They shouldn't, they shouldn't let up on this uh, because the fact of the matter is he can be moved. I don't know how much he can be moved. I'm not naive about it, but um, he will be a better candidate and a better president if the left keeps pushing. They can't right. let up. I want to shift quickly to your article on Trump can't delay the election. So he's trying to make a chaotic mess of it. So even with all the criticisms that you have, obviously, of the Democratic Party or your concerns and critiques of the Democratic Party and this candidate, you still see the threat that Donald Trump is to this country. Discuss that article in context of the chaos that he's trying to create. Look, Donald Trump cannot delay or cancel the presidential election. The Constitution sets and frame a time work and a timeline that requires a new president to come in on January 20th. It also frankly sets up a scenario where you have to have your new Senate and House in the first week of January. You can't do that if you delay the November election. Mm-hmm. And also we have federal laws that set the election for you know, the start of November. So Trump knows that as dim-witted and disengaged and dishonest as he may be, he knows that reality. So why is he throwing up the possibility of delaying the election? It's because he wants to create a sense of chaos that does two things. One, may make some people just give up on the thing. I think he's false, he's a false premise in his own head. But I think he wants some people to think it's not, you know, it just isn't gonna be a functional election. 
But second, I think he wants to delegitimize an election that he, I think, now expects to lose. And so what you're seeing with Trump is some of the worst type of gaming of our politics. And it is frankly a bet on his part that things could be so chaotic, so messed up that somehow he could do what political scientists tell us is possible. Lose the popular vote by five, six, seven million votes Mm. and still sneak through on an electoral college win because in some places at least there's a low turnout. You know, there's a lot happening in terms of progressive politics, uh, the the depressing reality that we're facing, not only politically, but as as far as uh, COVID-19. Before we get out of here, there was something that you said the last time we spoke. Yeah. You said about the hopefulness that you have, and and you put it in context of the continued fight, uh, the fight that started that someone else began, and they didn't see the end of it, but we continue it. I want you to give like just take a minute and talk to the audience about how it is that. You've seen all the realities, you've studied the realities, you understand the context of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party, our electoral party system. But why is it that you still have hope in this progressive fight? Oh, I, I'm more hopeful about the progressive fight than ever because it's almost always defined by the times. People organize, they mobilize, they, they do the hard work, but they, they build the movements to be ready for the moment in which something becomes possible. And so the fact of the matter is in this United States of America, you could have been born an abolitionist in the late 18th century, lived your whole life and never seen your goal realized. But you you kept the flag flying, you kept fighting for it because someone else would pick that baton up and carry it forward. And it's true on social security, on Medicare, on everything that we've ever wanted. You know, People have lived their lifetime and not gotten it. But because they fought in their lifetime, somebody else was able to pick it up and carry it forward. That's why we honor our heroes of the past. And that's why we honor our heroes of the present. I just talked to Barbara Lee um, uh, yesterday at great length, or the other day at great length. And um, and she talked about passing the baton. The people mm. gave her the baton. She carried it often alone, casting that one vote against uh, endless yeah. war. Yeah. And she handed it off to somebody else. That's what I believe in. I believe. We do our work, not necessarily to win, we hope we win, but we do it because it's our duty to carry it on and to pass that baton to the next fighter. John, thank you so much for that. I think that's so critical in context of everything that's going on. John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for the nation.com, author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. Please be sure to pick up that book. Thank you for your time, John. Thank you, it's such an honor to be with you, my friend. Take care. Welcome back to the conversation. I am excited to be joined by someone I consider to be a friend, Ken Klippenstein. I really, Ken, I really wanted to refer to you as the Krasis thing, but I'm not going to do that to you. Welcome to the to the conversation. How are you, man? I like how you did that. I'm not going to do this to you, and then you just did. <laughs> no, I love it. And it's weird. It's like like we changed places a little bit. You were formerly of the Young Turks, but now you're with the Nation.com, Nations, the Nation's DC correspondent. And and I'm not. With, I'm just hanging out and filling in, covering um, some vacancies here. But uh, glad to have you on this episode. Your work has been 
phenomenal, man. And I, I don't say that just to, to flatter you. Like you have been on the cutting edge of these Freedom of Information Act requests, and you have exposed quite a bit. Some of your most recent work, you've been discussing how um, Homeland Security is quietly trying to tie Antifa uh, to foreign powers. Uh, let's dig in there. Tell me about that report. Yeah, so I was pretty shocked by this. And uh, I say that as someone who's covered uh, President Trump's Department of Homeland Security for a couple of years now. So, uh, you know, I just when you think you've got a, a hold of everything and you're not gonna be surprised anymore, here you go. So um, what was given to me from a source within Department of Homeland Security was an intelligence report uh, that sought to tie Antifa or uh, I should say individuals they think are Antifa uh, with foreign militants. In this case, the YPG, the Peshmerga, the PKK, these are all uh, Kurdish militant groups operating in uh, Syria and uh, Western Iraq. Um, and what's interesting about that is um, that's what you do if you wanna try to strip someone's civil liberties, someone's rights, you say, well, actually they're acting on behalf of a foreign power. So yeah. when you take protesters and you know President Trump has vowed in the past to label Antifa terrorist organization, you can't do that to American citizens unless you're able to prove that they're acting on behalf of a foreign power. Right, and then what's interesting about that, like the groups that you you said that um, that the Homeland Security is trying to tie them to, um, the United States has generally good relationships with those organizations. We've allied with them before. We've utilized their services in northern Syria uh, in several conflicts. But it, so it's not really any merit. Uh, it's really just a technique to undermine the movement here in the United States uh, against police violence and the police state in general. Yeah, you're exactly right. When you look at a lot of these um, Kurdish uh, militant groups, these are the ones the U.S. was not just working with, but um, you know, fighting alongside, but coordinating with. Uh, you know, I have heard things about them providing GPS coordinates for airstrikes and things like that. So we have yeah. very, very close coordination between the U.S. So for the U.S. to come and say, "Oh, we've got these scary, you know, questionable groups," that's really disingenuous. Um, perhaps President Trump believes that because I know that um, you know it was reported recently that Trump. Met with the president of Turkey, Erdogan, uh, mm -hmm. and Erdogan told him <laughs> it's sort of a smart move from his point of view, very immoral uh, move, but smart move on uh, Erdogan's part. He said that Antifa is connected to the Kurds. Of mm. course, uh, you know Erdogan has treated the Kurds terribly, um, you know, during his time in office, as have many, you know, Turkish leaders. Um, but you know, when he told Trump that, ever since then, suddenly we have you know attempts to try to tie these people that volunteered to fight alongside these Kurdish groups. To um, you know, foreign foreign actors. So that's very interesting. Uh, and we have, of course, the context of all this being uh, President Trump being far more pro-Turkey, anti-Kurd than um, previous presidents. And actually, that was one of the reasons that um, Secretary of Defense Mattis is said to have resigned was that uh, he felt that Trump had betrayed the Kurds. So all of this provides, I think, pretty interesting context for for uh, what DHS is doing. Right, that was one of the other issues I was gonna bring up. The fact that under Trump's administration, we did essentially betray and we abandoned the Kurds after we after so many of them sacrificed their lives on our behalf. Um, and so now we're coming full circle where not only it's a foreign policy issue, um, uh, some type of acquiescence to Turkey and Erdogan, but also he's gonna leverage it for his own domestic purposes. I, I think you, you're doing some phenomenal reporting over there. Um, you mentioned in your reporting, uh, Brace Belden. Uh, he's a leftist podcaster um, for the True Anon podcast. They actually interviewed him. What did you find out about his his experiences uh, with this situation? So he's another one of these individuals that you know I would characterize as an activist at the very least. You know, a, a very left wing person. If you look at the podcast; they're you know very overt about their uh, left wing politics. Um, this is one example of someone that they are trying to tie to a foreign 
militant group that I was describing before. And what's frightening about this is if they're successful in doing so, I don't think they were. And if you look at the intelligence report, the analysts themselves sort of says, well, a lot of this is kind of thin. However, if they succeed in doing that, they're gonna be able to authorize pretty frightening sorts of national security tools to be able to monitor and track these individuals. For example, they can conduct forms of electronic surveillance, they can wiretap you, they can do all sorts of things that an ordinary you know, resident within the United States, they're not able to do unless they're able to prove that they're acting at the behest um, of some foreign power. Again, I don't think that that's true. You know, I uh, interviewed Brace, I've known him for some time. <laughs> I don't think he's taking marching orders from a group that he volunteered four years ago at some point in time. You know, he's very overt about his, about his, about his politics, which seemed to just be you know, pretty standard left-wing politics. Um, when, uh, but when you look at the attempts by DHS to try to prove this, to my mind, one of the main reasons they would do this is to be able to um, bring more of the tools of the national security apparatus to bear against yeah. um, against these left wing individuals. Yeah, and also the chilling effect, right? So even in this reporting, right, the the idea that the federal government is trying to, uh, or and Donald Trump specifically is actually trying to make good on his threat to label Antifa as a terrorist organization. Um, I don't know how many people that's actually going to scare, but generally that seems to be the tactic of a authoritarian leaning government. Uh, let's shift gears to uh, your article on how um, they're still trying to arrest journalists in Portland. Um, a lot of attention has shifted uh, slightly away from Portland since the federal agents have more or less left the region and things have gotten more peaceful. But tell me about what you're finding there. Yeah, so what's incredible about that is that the Oregon Attorney General actually filed suit against the Department of Homeland Security. That's very unusual to have two types of feds you know, at sorts points like that. But I think the you know, Attorney General is right to do that because you were having instances of you know, tear, repeated tear gas as a journalist. Not just that, launching of tear gas canisters at demonstrators. Uh, faces, which um, you know, they call them non-lethal. Is a better term for it is less lethal. That's actually another term and more accurate one, I think, because you can't actually, unfortunately, kill people uh, with these things if they're not used properly. They're supposed to be shot, you know, in the vicinity or at people's feet. They're not supposed to be launched at people's physical um, persons. And in, you know, in one case, they ended up shattering this poor guy's skull, and he ended up ended up having to get um, reconstructive surgery for it. So, uh, I think that the uh, Oregon Attorney General is right to to sue DHS. Um, and then the ACLU ended up filing suit along with them. And what they ended up succeeded in doing was getting a um, restraining order placed against DHS that sort of prevented some of the worst practices from happening. But um, as a source within DHS and the documents that this person furnished to me shows is that um, that improvement was pretty limited. Uh, so DHS quickly took to um, disseminating a law enforcement sensitive um, document. Uh, that's a term that means you know they can't disseminate it outside of outside of their agency without getting in pretty serious trouble. Um, and what this document showed was it kind of coached them on um, the legality of of uh, what they're able to get away with after after this restraining order. And it kind of told them you know you can still expose journalists to um, tear gas and uh, crowd suppressants. It just has to be incidental is the mm. sort of euphemism that they use. So you can't literally target them or if you do um, say that it was an accident. And I think that DHS and I know my sources tell me this too, they know what that means when, when you say incidental. It's kind of a wink and uh, you know, uh, saying, well, make sure you don't say it was intentional if, if something like this comes out. So I'm not saying it wasn't good that the you know, um, attorney general filed suit and that the um, finding wasn't you know, constructive, but it doesn't go far enough, I don't think. You know, I, I find your reporting 
particularly refreshing because of your sourcing, because of your approach, right? You you have quite a few reveals, breaking news that you get. You know, are you finding in this approach a, a gap, right? Or is there a gap that you're feeling that that just other reporters are not going through this due diligence? And I'm kind of moving away from like the substance of your reporting and more to like the culture of reporting in general. Do you find that the lane for you to have all of these um, scoops is a result of a gap in journalism in general? Or is it just so niche that uh, no one else was paying attention to it? 100% Ben, and what I'm struck by again and again is when I have these stories, there's no shortage of public interest. There's this misconception, I think, where it's like, oh, you know, there's just no demand. The, the, the general public has such low taste, they wouldn't appreciate these kind of things. We've got to just give them, you know, uh, entertainment, reality shows, this kind of thing. <laughs> None of which I'm against, by the way. <laughs> but um, it, that's just not true that they don't want to learn about these things. Because whenever I have one of these stories that performs, you know, I can tell you from the internal numbers on our site, performs very well. Judging from the sources that reach out to me subsequent to it, uh, either inspired by the disclosures within these stories or you know um, move felt feeling moved to action to, to do something about it there's a great deal of public concern both within the institutions and among the general public so um, unfortunately I think that it is a lane that's been left open um, voluntarily uh, mm. you know by it's an, it's an elective thing that people decide not to cover it I mean we could go into the institutional problems certainly um, it's easier for me at the nation I think to um, cover some of this stuff than it might be for people in other institutions, but a lot of it is voluntary and it's really disappointing. I mean, for me, it's great because I get all these scoops now and I have no competition <laughs> to do it. But uh, but for the society, unfortunately, yeah. uh, you know, we don't benefit. I'd, I'd much rather everyone be not, you know, uh, uh, looking at, uh, say, the treatment of protesters in this case or, yeah. uh, you know, what to, but there's this tendency to just, you know, the echo chamber, they'll focus on whatever it is CNN, you know, is put, or what's on the front page of the New York Times. Which yeah. you know they can do good work, but um, it, that's not all that's going on. There's much more to it than than what's on the front page of the Times. Ken Kupastain is the nation's DC correspondent. Uh, he's worked for senior investigative reporter for TYT Investigates and the Daily Beast. Um, how are your brothers doing? No, I'm, j- I'm joking. <laughs> hey man, I love your work. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much for your time, man. Great to be with you, Ben. Take care. Take care.